The online lies that have concerned us most in recent years have been those of politicians and their operatives. This is understandable. The stakes of the falsehoods are high, their impact is broadly felt, and their mendacity is often glaring. But beyond the political stage, the internet is implicated in every layer of our private lives, and there's deceit all the way down. This is the territory explored in Fake Accounts, the debut novel by the American writer Lauren Euler. The story begins with its unnamed narrator finding out her boyfriend is a popular internet conspiracy theorist. We follow her attempts in the wake of this discovery to navigate the fraught obstacle course where online and offline life meet. It's set in New York and Berlin and against the political backdrop of the early Trump presidency. Lauren Euler recently sat down with Monocle's acting New York correspondent Henry Reese Sheridan to discuss the book for this edition of the Monocle Weekly. People often say my generation values authenticity. Reluctantly, I will admit to being a member of my generation. If we value authenticity, it's because we've been bombarded since our impressionable preteen years with fakery, but at the same time are uniquely able to recognize, because of the unspoiled period that stretched from our birth to the moment our parents had the screeching dial-up installed, the ways in which we casually commit fakery ourselves. We are also uniquely unwilling to let this self-awareness stop us. Did you set out to write a book about the internet and its effects? Or did you set out to write one about more general experiences and themes that concern you, uh, only to realise that the internet and social media are so inextricable from those that the internet was going to have to be central? I definitely wanted to write about the internet. I, I think particularly when I started working on it, there was this idea that... Um, you couldn't write a novel about the internet that would be literary or that would be particularly interesting because the internet is so um, horrible and so chaotic that you couldn't narrativize it in any meaningful or um, compelling way. Uh, and I like a challenge. So, and and I'd been on sort of addicted to Twitter for several years at that point, and I knew I saw all the time this sort of drama and the way that you can pull a narrative out of out of what happens on social media. So I did definitely want to write about social media and simultaneously I wanted to sort of think about a lot of these questions about the self and about autofiction and the relationship between the author and their, their books, uh, which were very sort of pressing salient questions at the time and, and still are, I think. So it, it made sense to me to put all those things together. I love the treatment of class in this book. You know, the protagonist is very self-conscious about her economic status relative to others. Uh, she hates the fact that to make ends meet in New York, she's got to sell her mind and her writing to a media company that she's got a low opinion of. And one of the driving reasons she moves to Berlin uh, is purely because it's cheaper. I get the sense that young Americans in recent years, have become more class conscious in a way that's kind of faintly academic, inspired by like the DSA and Bernie Sanders. But I'm not sure if that kind of uh, uh, political rhetoric corresponds with a greater willingness or ability to discuss kind of specific class markers on the individual level and how they affect people's relationships. Was class a theme that you were conscious of addressing in this book? I think I was definitely conscious of it. I didn't want it to be sort of, I didn't want there to be a sort of lesson about class. You know, I just wanted it to be sort of a realistic portrayal of this class of sort of international creative millennials, right? Um, 
which I think I think there is a rhetoric and a discourse around class now that's very academic and sort of elides the day-to-day realities of what things cost, what do people buy, what what is considered an appropriate expense like within our milieu, if I can say our milieu, I think that's probably fair. Um, and, and how, what, what are people paying for rent, this sort of thing. Um, and this sort of perceptions of the perceptions versus the realities of how much things actually cost. So I think one of the things I talk about is how many Americans think that going to live in Europe is a sort of luxury that only, uh, wealthy people could afford. Um, but actually, She's like, well, I got this Norwegian air flight for $270 and then I had to pay $50 to check my bag. And then I'm not even going to tell you how much the rent I was paying, what the rent I was paying was because it's so low that you'll feel bad about yourself, right? Um, So yes, and I think too, in fiction, often there's this sort of uh, uh, obscuring of inconvenient details so off the the sort of main question people are always asking is how is this protagonist living the lifestyle that this protagonist is living because surely it costs where's her money coming from she doesn't have a job really she's just walking around thinking her thoughts without any income and I think that's a shame because cost and um, class pressure both uh, create a lot of like drama and tension that makes total sense to be in a novel, even if it's not at the sort of forefront. I think some of the sort of most pressing questions in my life, at least, are where's the money coming from? How how long do I have income for? Because I've been freelance for four years. So, you know, you, you get into a situation where you're like, oh, I have a huge check coming. And then nothing for six months. Right. And, and and I think that that's sort of interesting because it's not really a situation, uh, such a large portion of, uh, the population has been in before. I read a really interesting interview that you gave to, I think it's uh, called the end of the world review, uh, uh, recently uh, where you talk about kind of class in literary culture in the U S I think you say that in Europe, it's more likely to encounter kind of an ordinary person, a middle-class person who's read interesting, substantive books, uh, who don't come from a fancy background than, than in, the, in the US. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. kind of clumsily. Yeah. How does it affect the relationship between like, the intelligentsia and society more broadly? To go back to what you said earlier, you made a little comment about how all the class analysis in the US seems very academic. And I think that's because no, nobody has any experience talking to a quote unquote normal person, right? I think if you sort of, this is one of the bad and also good things about the internet that I find very useful as uh, when I, I was writing my novel, but whenever I'm thinking about sort of fiction projects, you can really just Google people and find out where they went to high school, like who their parents are, like what, what law, law firms are they, you know, partners at and things like this. And so you sort of see like, oh, this, this person grew up in the suburbs, uh, suburbs of Los Angeles, and they probably have never met a poor, a poor person. And then they're sort of like going on and on about Marx. And there's this sort of real disconnect. And I think that a lot of them like that there's disconnect, right? Like, I think it gives, if you think that you're sort of <laughs> special, right? You, um, you you you're the only person who knows and you are the only person who can speak to uh 
the conditions of society um, and you don't you don't want other people to be able to, to comment on things. Do you think they're self-conscious of that or are they just enjoying the conditions? I of think this they're enjoy- I think they're enjoying it. And I think I think and I understand why you would. Right. I think I, I think I don't know. But what's what's sort of amazing is that they don't realize that anybody who has come from a sort of lower class background or even a, even a middle class background, I I'm pretty comfortable saying I think that the majority of people working in the culture industry in the United States are from an upper class background. I think if you come from the middle or lower classes, you can just see immediately that they don't they don't know what a banana costs to to quote arrested development. Um, uh, but they don't realize that they're giving off all these little signals all the time. So coming back to what you were uh, talking about with like the kind of L.A. suburban Marxist uh, <laughs> spouting <laughs> jargon from it his really ivory is tower. jargon. It's amazing. I think, too, because I had never heard any of these words before I went to college and even really at Yale. Obviously, I learned nothing of Marx at Yale. Uh, like it just seems ridiculous to me that these people would be speaking about the working class in this, in with the jargon, as you say. One of the points that you make in the book is that this, this kind of jargon, and, and you, you italicize it throughout the book, right? So I'll read some of the examples. So authoritarian, strongman, autocracy, kleptocracy, working groups, organizers, black block tactics, right? This, this language after the election of Trump kind of, uh, uh, filtered down uh, into into the, the the non-academic classes, into the general population. You describe, well, excuse me, the protagonist goes to the Women's March in D.C. shortly after Trump's elected. She notices this, and she observes that it was as if everyone had taken introduction to political philosophy and wanted to impress the hot professor. What's happened to political language since 2016? How do you explain this? Well, I think this sort of easy answer is to do with social media. And I think the way that that people sort of adopt, you can watch, you can really watch it happen if you are watching Twitter all the time, as I am, and, and you see people adopt certain sort of terms, and then you watch other people adopt them and very, you'll just see, oh, everyone is saying, um, Everyone is saying, I'm trying to think of one recently. Let's just say it's oligarchy, even though that's a boring one. But let's everyone's suddenly saying oligarchy. And you notice it because it's sort of not a word that people are casually using all the time. Um, and I think it's to do with trying to create the sense that you have always been thinking in these sort of high flown terms. And this is this you're just sort of tweeting off the cuff uh, in these sort of um, sort of falsely incendiary but quite uh compact thesis statements and you can sort of easily make these grand arguments about the whole state of the entire political system um just on a tuesday while you're actually supposed to be doing other work uh and then there's this the whole other thing which is the instagram card the the instagram infographic culture where you have these graphic designers making these sort of flowery very pretty um, Instagram stories about like how to resist a coup and and what what you should bring to the protest in case you get hurt or there's tear gas and and all this stuff and it's this sort of total abandonment of 
any fear of seeming, <laughs> seeming like your personal branding, like it's totally acceptable to be constantly faking, faking and, and trying to make oneself appear a certain way, even though it's very obvious, I think to anyone who looks at this, that everyone is kind of, um, full of shit <laughs> right right totally i think also with the language stuff it kind of functions as a shibboleth it it uh like makes it very difficult for people who are not familiar with the language to criticize you mm-hmm. right if, if you're throwing around kind of marxist terminology and footnotes and references everywhere that way of engaging itself presumes you've already won the argument you're already party to more information you're already party to more uh incisive like insight and if anyone criticizes you, you they're an idiot. Right. And I think, too, the thing that people hide behind is the, the pretense of educating others. So everybody wants to, to be the one to say, oh, actually, a more appropriate term is equity, not equality, even though that just I, I remember that that happened during all the Black Lives Matter protests. Suddenly, everyone decided that we were saying equity and not equality and if you need to have a little infographic explained to you the difference between those two things, then that's fine for you, but you should sort of be ashamed of yourself because you didn't realize this before, right? Uh, and I think everybody wants to be in that, have the sort of upper hand of being the person who tells other people what's going on rather than having to be told. There's a section of the book in which the protagonist goes on a series of dates in Berlin and for each one, she adopts a different persona corresponding uh, uh, to, to an astrological star sign. Explain uh, that section in a little bit more detail. Explain its form and uh, talk a little bit about what you're trying to get at. Sure. Well, so in the book, um, she the protagonist starts doing OK Cupid on a sort of lark. She pretends that she's uh, not doing it seriously and it's just a sort of project, but she's going on quite a lot of dates. And she is making up different personalities each time she goes on a date. And then she gets mad because all the guys want to talk about themselves and she doesn't get to practice her personalities that she's come up with. So um, there's a point in the book where she uh, decides she's listening to a podcast, which is an interview with an author. And the author is talking about how she's written her book in fragments because life is so fragmented now, particularly for her as a woman and a mother who just doesn't have any time to write uh, a full paragraph. So she's written her book in fragments and the protagonist gets really irritated by this. And then the form of the book changes to this fragment. And so that's a very, um, it's a, it's a parody of the style, but also it's quite easy to do this sort of iterative date thing, um, which I do. And so she decides she's going to go on a bunch of okay Cupid dates, uh, with a personality based on all the astrological signs and astrology, I think is very interesting in the, the way that it's become popular. Um, I think is relates to the way people treat social media as a sort of branding exercise, but not, it's not just a cynical branding exercise. I think it really does. People are really sort of searching for um, a sense of identity and a sense of purpose. And I think this sort of like ready-made astrological combinations. And if you get really into astrology, you know, it's not just you have one sign, you have a moon sign, you have a rising sign, you have sort of transits and all these things mean different things. So you can get really specific, which I think, um, 
is is this sort of neoliberal like uh, hyper you know we can customize everything exactly how we we want it to be so you can do that with your personality as well um, so I think the commentary on and 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 I think in terms of feminism generally astro- astrology is seen to be a sort of women's game uh, and. I know that there are many people who believe that if you criticize astrology, you're being sort of sexist, uh, which may or may not be true. Um, but I think that there are people who actually believe and take it fully seriously and they don't understand that it's just a sort of interpretive tool and you can use it as one of many ways of thinking about your life, but it's not literally true. And I think throughout the book, there are a bunch of different things where the protagonist doesn't know if someone is being serious or how serious they're being. And she, and she's, sort of in this state of being constantly confused and like untrusting of people. It's very rare that someone is pressed to explain themselves. So mm. I think that that results in a lot of people doing things sort of randomly or for no real reason. But in literature, and I think on social media as well, everybody needs to have a take. Everyone needs to have a sort of angle. Everyone needs to have a sort of interpretation prepared. And and I see a lot of contemporary novels sort of having a very narrow understanding of why the characters in them are doing what they're doing, a very narrow understanding of motivation. Uh, when I think that actually in life, plenty of people do things for no good reason. You know, when you said there, it's rare that people are pressed to kind of justify beliefs, mm-hmm. right? I think that's completely true. People are at once kind of incentivized to adopt strident stances on a, on a variety of positions, which frankly, the majority of people are always going to be unqualified to talk about. But at the same time, I feel that it's become like rude to press people too strongly to justify their beliefs. Or it's, do you know what I'm talking about? Like it's become rude to be like, to, to just question, to be like, why do you believe that? Or say, I, I think you're wrong. Absolutely. And I think, why is that? I don't know. I think the reason, I I am a critic and I am I write these sort of negative book reviews sometimes and I think <laughs> that I see that a lot in the books that I'm reviewing as well that it's clear that this person has written 300 pages <laughs> about something that they haven't even really thought that much about and you get the sense that if you ask them why did you say this you know why did you say this? Why did you argue this in your in your book that they wouldn't really be able to answer it? And and I don't know what that comes from. I think there is at least like in my neck of the internet woods, uh, there is a sort of feminist, sort of mainstream feminist idea that you don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to explain yourself to anyone. And that can be perniciously applied to, (laughs) to just about anything, uh, which is, is sort of, um, runs counter to, any real intellectual and any true like intellectual culture if everybody's sort of getting mad when they're challenged and saying I don't have to explain myself to you and then it's like well why did you want to be a public commentator (laughs) right it doesn't make any sense but then at the same time I think it makes sense in a sort of very basic way which is that people don't like to be embarrassed and people don't like to be proven wrong and people don't (laughs) people want to seem cool and smart that that's a very it's a sort of basic obvious point but that's true they want us people want to seem cool and smart and um like unassailable 
I don't think anyone would expect people to enjoy being criticised or being pressed to kind of uh, justify their views, although it can be invigorating, but it's more just, you know, there's a complete kind of like abandonment of the acknowledgement of the value of the exercise. Well, I think that a lot of writers and a lot of, I don't know, commentators, tweeters, I don't know who, what, what's, I don't, we've sort of, we're speaking very generally, but I think a lot of people see the value of the exercise as being personal growth and as figuring out what they think in public and thinking there's this like idea of thinking in public that has become totally perverted. There's a, a lot of people who seem to believe that the value of the intellectual exercise of debate and critique or whatever is actually personal, that it has nothing to do with the reader or the public or the audience, but it's about I'm figuring out what I think about this issue and I am lucky enough to have a platform to discuss it with you. So I'm going to do that live instead of doing that on my own time and then coming with something prepared and something that we can really talk about seriously, right? So if you're, if you're critiquing me, if you're criticizing me when I'm doing this sort of therapeutic exercise, then you are stepping on my toes. You're a fearless critic. I have been a fan of your criticism for a long time. It's one of the reasons I was exciting the, uh, I was excited the book was coming out. And, and yeah, you make a point of not pulling punches. Are you nervous about fake accounts just about to be tossed into the ringer of that, of the kind of criticism industry? Well, I, I think I have had to think about this a lot because of my sort of reputation as being super mean. Uh, so I think I'm prepared for that. And I think I have a sort of cynical understanding of how these things go. And if I can get the backlash at the start, then there's not any actual backlash, right? Uh, as opposed to these sort of highly celebrated, you know, flashy books where everyone's praising it and you you know at some level that this can't possibly be true because everybody is just raving in sort of very vague laudatory terms, right? And, and I would hate for people to, to be lying about thinking my my book was brilliant right because they thought that they were supposed to or wanted you know I don't know I have nothing to give at anyone but I'm sure that there's some element of like careerism involved too right uh, because m most of the people who review books are writers themselves and I think that they want to create you know you know sort of create reciprocity and want to avoid getting trashed and, and making enemies. Um, but I think you're going to have enemies no matter what. That was Lauren Euler speaking to Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan. Fake Accounts is out in the UK on February the 4th. Do order a copy now. I've been Augustin Magellari. This was the Monocle Weekly. Do keep an eye on the website for more great interviews from the world of art and culture. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.